In 2012, the whole discussion about the Asia century yes. actually started. If we talk about the Asia century, we need to talk about Asian Australians because they're the ones who know Asia best. And so it was both because I wanted to shift the narrative from with the multicultural sector from just the European culture and make it broader plus the international engagement, especially where we want to build better relationships with Asia. I wanted to have more Asian Australians involved in talking about the Asia century. My guest today is Wessa Chow, the CEO and founder of Cultural Intelligence and one of the few Asian Australians who ran as a candidate in the last Victorian state election. Where she was seven, Wessa moved to Australia from Hong Kong with her family. And despite growing up in 90s Australia and the pressures to fit in, Wessa liked being different from others. She was proud of her Chinese heritage and the Chinese culture that came along with it, like the language, food, and one of her favorites, martial art movies. Wessa's clout is the role that she played to advocate for the Asian Australian communities in Australia. First, for Chinese international students during her time at uni, and later giving a platform for Asian Australians to have a stronger voice in Australia's multicultural dialogue. We talked about the moment Wessa understood the impact advocacy could make to a community. Wessa's own pathway from a girl who never put her hand up in class to someone leading more visibility amongst Asian Australians across the Australian discourse and her reflections on how cultural understanding for organisations and individuals can help give the Chinese diaspora a stronger voice and influence in Australia. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability to help us understand what Bain and Uzi with Clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Wessa Chow. Hi, Wessa. Welcome to Cloud Asia. Hi. It's great to be on. It's um, great to have you. <laughs> yeah, I knew about it when you first started. So this is great to finally be on and chat to you on your podcast. Well, it's really good to have you on. Why don't we take it back to the very start and tell us how you got into maybe politics right from the very beginning growing up in Melbourne and your advocacy work at uni? Sure. So I came to Australia when I was seven with my parents and never thought about politics, even at university. So I studied engineering commerce. So that has nothing to do with politics, as you can imagine. But I fell into it because at university, I started the Australian Federation of International Students in 2002. And because of that, I did a lot of work engaging with both the community, but also advocacy. That was my first interface with government. Before that, it was simply doing my own thing, running student clubs. But it was because of the advocacy that I needed to engage with government and found that I was actually pretty good at it. So I engaged with local councils, state government, federal government, being involved in a lot of consultations, forums, talked to politicians as well about the issues facing international students and then decided I think that's something 
that I really enjoy doing. And mm. so since then I started work in the multicultural sector, so doing a lot more advocacy around cultural diversity, both in the community sector but also more broadly as well, working with the corporate sector, not-for-profit sector, government sector, so all of it. So that's how I started and really enjoy it. I'm really curious. I want to take a huge step back to when you were seven. I think our introduction to Australia was somewhat similar. I came here when I was five and a half, but the biggest difference was that I never studied in China. And I'm thinking and reflecting on your work with the international students, I'd love to hear what made you start something like that. For me, that was just a group of students at uni that was a little bit too far removed from my own university experience. Tell me a little bit more about your first kind of years when you moved to Melbourne, if you can still remember, and later on how you thought about setting up the Australian Federation of International Students. My growing up might be a little bit different from a lot of people because I kept my culture. When I first came, it wasn't a case of I really needed to fit in. I was a little different. I didn't mind people thinking that I was a bit different because I thought to myself, well, I am because I'm from Hong Kong (laughs) and nobody else is. And so I was sort of proud of that. At home, I would be watching a lot of martial art movies and reading as well. I kept my Chinese for that reason. So I can read Chinese and speak Chinese and write Chinese. But I really enjoy the ancient Chinese literature. I read a lot of books that were written in Chinese as well. So I think because of that, I grew up loving the Chinese culture and nobody was going to take that away from me. When I started university, I joined the Chinese Culture Society and with a group like that, there were quite a lot of mixed people, Mm. like people who were local students but just wanting to understand the Chinese culture, Chinese Australians but also international students. Mm. Um, Many of them were international students actually. And so because of that, my connection with international students became very strong. So Mm. most of my really close friends were international students. And then when they run into problems, I feel like, oh, yeah, actually I didn't realise how, what a privileged position I'd be in because Mm. I've got my family here. Yes. So if anything happens, I've got my family, whereas international students didn't. And that was really good in the sense that you create a community And you feel like you can contribute quite a bit to the lives of international students, especially when they run into trouble. I watched a very early video of the launch of the International Student Care Service by... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wessa just made a face. (laughs) Education Minister, Minister Bronwyn Pike and the Premier John Brumby and a younger version of yourself. Was that kind of the first time that you were kind of introduced to politics and the role of community and advocacy as it relates to what politicians do? That was probably one of the success stories. Mm. I made a face because I still remember that day and there was a really funny image where 
the media person who was interviewing me was literally two times taller than me, where I looked like a dwarf or a little kid just answering a question from this giant. (laughs) That's why I made a face. But it was a success story because that was a probably two years of advocacy to have a one-stop shop to support international students. So I had that idea maybe two years since I started the Australian Federation of International Students. Really didn't know how to make it happen. But then because of certain situations, there were a lot more discussions about the need to support international students. Mm. And then through working with other government departments. At the time, it was the Victorian Multicultural Commission through all the advocacy and also talking to the community about, well, what do we actually need? So Mm. it's not just advocating for advocating sake, but it was like talking to the students to see, well, what would actually help? It was a great moment for me. That was the time when I finally realised that how long advocacy actually takes But when it does happen, you feel really good because it was a result of a long fight. From that moment on, I understood that you actually need to keep at it. Mm. There's no way you can just expect things to happen quickly. And then understanding that timeline made me more effective in many ways because I know if I start something now, nothing's going to happen in a year's time but you just have to keep going and talking to people it was the time when I really understand what politics is about did you do this advocacy work whilst you were still studying your undergraduate yeah after you graduated from your engineering and commerce degree did you go into something similar that was as a direct result I started work in the multicultural sector so more in advocacy I really quite enjoy the advocacy work, especially when things actually do happen. (laughs) You feel like you had a role in making that happen. Yes. And you also set up cultural intelligence, your own company, which is really aimed at helping governments, corporations, businesses build and have a better understanding of cultural nuances and multicultural society. It was really to help organizations to think about their processes because I think one of the things that I learned being an advocate is to understand the systemic barriers. I see systemic barriers are like the the rules of the country are like boundaries but some boundaries just doesn't work for multicultural communities. So if you remove those barriers, then we're starting to see a community or a a country that allow people from different cultural backgrounds thrive as well. I'm curious to know what prompted you to look much more broadly at the multicultural space rather than perhaps Asian culture, which is something that you can relate to directly. Well, at the time, the Asian-Australian movement is not very strong because I actually have a role to play in strengthening that. In Melbourne, at the time at least, there's just so many different cultures. Mm. I think it was really good working within the multicultural sector because it actually helped me understand culture in its full and cultural differences and understanding 
all of that makes me a little bit more empathetic to people who say, well, you know, this is really hard and it is hard. Mm -hmm. And how do we build an Australian culture that is inclusive, not just to Asian Australians, but also to other Australians as well? I agree. I moved overseas in 2014. And when I left, I felt the Asian Australian narrative and advocacy wasn't really there or at least it wasn't so prominent. I was working in Canberra at the time, so it was a relatively vanilla city. But then coming back in 2020, there was such a huge wave or a strengthening of that voice of Asian Australians, Asian Americans as well. I know that you have done a lot of things in the Australia-China space. You were invited to be a delegate for the Australia-China high-level dialogue which was led by the former Prime Minister, John Howard, alongside senior politicians. Reflecting back, how do you see that narrative shifted and the role that you have played in furthering that in Australia? There are actually two layers to it. The first was when it comes to multiculturalism, what I started to see was that the multicultural sector is dominated by European cultures. And I feel like there's not enough being done understanding culture in its full. Mm. And so even the multicultural sector, it's not necessarily all-inclusive, mm. <laughs> especially to cultures that are different, like African cultures, Asian cultures particularly. And so because of that, I wanted to do something more in terms of how do we actually talk about cultures in a very different way. Mm. And at the same time, for me, I started to do more in the international affairs space. In 2012, the whole discussion about the Asia Century yeah. actually started. If we talk about the Asia Century, we need to talk about Asian Australians because they're the ones who know Asia best. Mm. And so it was both because I wanted to shift a narrative from with the multicultural sector from just the European culture and make it broader, plus the international engagement, especially where we want to build better relationships with Asia, I wanted to have more Asian Australians involved in talking about the Asia century. And so I think it was fitting at the time to start having that conversation about Asian Australians. And did you find when you started to have those conversations that there were other Asian Australians willing to participate? There were a couple. When I first started, I had a lot of resistance from everybody. <laughs> About you starting this? Yes, me starting this, but even just the narrative of mm. it. So from people who are involved in the Australia-China, Australia-Asia space, talked about it from the perspective of diaspora engagement. Oh, yeah, it's something we need to think about, but then they're not really that interested. I tried actually having a discussion about Asian Australians back, oh, probably 2014, around the time you left Australia. Yes. They weren't interested. I couldn't even organise an event with mm. one of the leading Australia-Asia organisations. Mm. And then from the Asian Australians, they didn't want to create a space that 
kind of stereotype themselves. It's like, I want to be mainstream. So many of them want it to be mainstream and don't want it to identify themselves as just Asian Australians. Mm -hmm. And so there was that. Every community I was speaking to had a bit of resistance. So both internally, also externally Mm. as well. We've come a long way. (laughs) We really have. And can you pinpoint a inflection point where something changed? Was it, I think maybe COVID, obviously in the state kind of banded together the Asian Americans advocating for their community? Was there a particular moment or it just was a gradual shift in Australia? There was a big moment when that really shifted and that was when Gareth Evans delivered his speech at an event. It was actually really interesting because I spoke to Gareth at another event before that, asking him basically to see if there's any appetite to talk more about Asian Australians. Gareth did his speech and then everyone started talking about it. And that was another moment to me where I thought, this is what politics can do. Mm -hmm. When you have a person of his standing, very well respected within the community, the whole of Australian community, whatever he say, people will listen. Yes. And it was a big moment, I think, for the whole Asian Australian community. I think it should be his legacy, actually, because with that speech, suddenly every media outlet is talking about that. And then me talking to other people about having conversations about Asian Australians became so easy. Mm. It makes me think it took someone from a non-Asian descent to advocate for Asian Australians. And maybe that's important to have just a diversity of advocacy from all sides, whatever it is, so that people can see that it's not just one or the other. We're all in agreement regardless of how you were brought up, your background, where your parents are from. I have to say your own political journey hasn't been without challenges as well. And I remember very clearly the submission that you made in parliament with two others got a lot of negative backlash. The attack, I believe, is quite unfounded on a cohort of Asian Australians who wanted to reflect some of the sentiments of the community. It makes me worry that does that deter others in having a voice or wanting to share their views? It does have an impact for a lot of people because they don't want to be scrutinised in that way publicly and it's not even a scrutiny it's ridiculous questioning Mm. from a sitting senator it's actually really interesting from my perspective because working in culture and understanding how culture works one of the things that I've understood was that in Australia you really need to step in if people are saying things about you you really need to step in to defend yourself and people respect that Mm. Whereas the natural reaction for a lot of Chinese Australians from a cultural perspective is to say, oh, let's not say anything. Mm. 
if we don't say anything, then they'll be okay with us. That's how we were taught, right? Our parents would be like, just try and stay quiet. Don't make a fuss. Yeah, status quo. Status quo. And also don't stand out so that people won't bully you. What I found is that bullies don't like people challenging them. In Australia, when you actually start to step in, step right in to actually challenge them back, you actually start to gain a lot more respect from people, which is sad in a way. It is another barrier for Chinese Australians where for people who are not from a culturally diverse background don't have to do that. That's the unfairness of it. Australia has 1.5 million Chinese diaspora, only many more Asian diaspora in Australia. I would love to see our parliament to be more reflective of that community. I think I read somewhere it's about four and a half, five percent of MPs in parliament have an Asian heritage. Is there a need for politicians if they're representing a community that perhaps have a different way of managing conflict and interacting that's more reflective of the communities that represent is actually in the long term what the community is looking for? That's a really interesting question because my PhD is in political skills. Mm. I've developed a typology of political skills and what's really, really interesting, and this is because of my practical work in cultural diversity and so I'm across quite a lot of research in cultural differences especially globally, what I found was the cultural differences, the cultural values that people might show differently actually matches with the typology that I've created in political skills. Interesting. What it means for me is that if you want to be influential in a different country, you actually need to learn a whole new way So your intent is not good enough. You'll actually need to find a different way to be able to be influential in a different country, depending on what the the cultural norm is in that country, which means that for a multicultural community, this is where it becomes really, really interesting. You actually need to learn, as good politicians in the future, this is what we need to see more of, and that is people who are more flexible in how they communicate, how they engage with people from different cultural communities. It's a really interesting one because I think if you don't come from a different country, you assume, well, they need to learn our way. But then the question then is, well, do you want their vote? If you want their vote, then you need to at least be aware. If I do it in this way, they're probably not going to take it very well or they're not going to understand it very well. You know, it makes me think that when we talk about Asia capability, and this is what this podcast is about. It's as much as it's about Australia being competitive globally because of where we sit geographically in the Asia region and needing to understand and be able to engage much more effectively with our Asian partners. There's also a huge element of domestic interest because of just the nature of how our communities are constructed. It's so multicultural and this is not just Asia capability. It's just 
having cultural awareness and cultural capability because that's how the makeup of our society is. So for politicians, it's really important to have a better understanding of those nuances. For me, getting involved in politics in Australia, I'm a lot more aware in the style in which I communicate. In terms of communication style, different communities have different styles. Mm. In Australia, it's a very direct style, especially in politics. Mm. And so one of the things that I had to learn how to do better is to communicate in a more direct way. On the topic of communication, have you always been someone at uni or in high school who's quite outspoken and led student rep councils and... No. (laughs) No? (laughs) No. So I used to be very shy I would be the last person to speak up, actually, at uni. It is something that I've learned over the years. It was because I wanted to advocate. I had to learn how to speak up. So the first few times when I put my hand up and spoke up at forums, I had to basically pre-write my speech. And that took a bit of work actually. Because being Asian, it's not something that I was taught to do as a young person. How did you go about telling yourself to push yourself to speak up or to take that plunge to overcome that fear? It was a little bit easier because I wasn't doing it for myself. Interesting. Because I knew I was doing it for the group that I was representing and I'm not speaking on my own behalf but because I'm helping other people I sort of have to do it and the motivation is stronger because you've got a reason to do it Mm. and it's easier to also work out what you're going to say because you have a ultimate outcome that you want it to achieve so for anyone who wants to learn how to speak (laughs) up find a course to speak up on it's a journey it is absolutely a journey that's why I think when people say oh you just need to do this it's not that easy (laughs) before we go into your four nominations what's one piece of advice for younger Asian Australians or young Asian women who want to have more of a voice doesn't have to be in politics. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can share your view and make an impact. What should they be thinking about? Learn to speak up and practice it in smaller forums. You don't have to do it all the time. If you feel like you don't speak up in meetings enough and you want to change that, you don't have to do it at every single meeting. Just pick one or two where you feel like that meeting is actually really important because the agenda item that they're talking about is going to impact on me Mm. or it's going to impact on my work. Therefore, pick those ones. Spend time to prepare so you think about what you're going to say. It might still come out differently, but that's okay. And then make sure that you do it. Even if you are really, really scared, still don't worry about what other people think. But it is about the practice though. Start small, practice, overcome that fear. Yes. Well, my favourite part, which is the four nominations that 
we ask our guests of Cloud Asia to share with us. Wessa, tell me what you have picked for your food of choice today. I love fish balls, especially lanyukao, which is a special fish that we have in southern China. Mm-hmm. I think mostly in Hong Kong, but I think Guangzhou ha- has it as well. And it's this handmade fish balls that you can't get here because you don't have the fish here. That was my next question of if it was available in Australia. In Mandarin, I looked it up. It's Ling Yu Chou, and it's a type of freshwater fish. Unfortunately, we don't really have it here. So whenever I go to Hong Kong, I'd be having that. I yeah. can imagine. Yum. For music, what have you picked? I like my healing music because I'm a sound meditation practitioner. What does that mean? You can use sound to meditate. And a lot of the Chinese music are actually very meditative, like the Chinese flute, mm. the guqing, yeah. um, the xiao. Those are really ancient instruments that people used to use for meditation. Well, we're going to have a very quick listen to that. You have nominated a martial arts TV series called Who Rules the World. Why did you pick that for us? Number one, because I love martial art TV shows. I grew up with that. I didn't care. I can't talk to my friends about it at school. I just love martial art shows. And this one particularly because usually when it comes to shows, there's not usually a very strong female character. This one has a really strong female character. And not only is she strong in terms of her martial arts skills, she's on par with a lot of the men. She's also a princess and ends up to be a queen in her own right. So Mm. not needing a male character to come and save her. That's amazing. We'll include it in our show notes. And last but not least, speaking of strong female leads, your person that you have nominated is Penny Wong. This one doesn't require a lot of (laughs) explanation given my interest in politics. And also seeing her in foreign affairs, I'm sure there'll be people who will say she's not doing a good job, but I think she is. Because foreign affairs is really challenging, particularly how well she engages with her counterparts in Southeast Asia and having her cultural understanding, I think, really helps. It's been great to have you on the show, Wessa. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Wessa. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Clout Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.